I'm going to invite you to grab your Bible now and turn to Acts chapter uh, 4. We're going to continue what is really going to be uh, a year-long series for us in the book of Acts. Today we're going to be in Acts 4 um, and looking at verses 32 to 37. If you don't own a Bible, there should be this red one around you. Feel free to use this this morning, uh, Acts 4. This passage is on page 970, and I want to read this and then uh, invite us just into a response of prayer, and then we'll get started in our teaching time. Luke, the doctor and a disciple of Jesus, writes this to us. Now the entire group of those who believed were of one heart and mind, and no one claimed that any of his possessions was his own. But instead they held everything in common. With great power, they were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was on all of them. But there was not a needy person among them, because all those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the proceeds of what was sold, and laid them at the apostles' feet. This then was distributed to each person as any had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus by birth, the one the apostles called Barnabas, which is translated son of encouragement, sold a field he owned, brought the money, and laid it at the apostles' feet. This is the reading of the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's just take a moment of silence and uh, just invite God to speak to us. Just take a deep breath in, take a deep breath out, be reminded today, if you are a follower of Jesus, God, the Father, longs to speak to you, even if you're not, if you're here and you're a seeker, you're a skeptic, God is your Father in heaven who longs for you to become his child, to listen to his voice, and to to flourish in all the ways that he's created you. So let's just take a moment of silence, and then I'll pray for us. God, our Father, we thank you that you reveal yourself to us, that you have, through your apostles and your prophets and disciples, long before us, captured this ancient wisdom, your revelation of yourself, what it means to flourish as human beings, what it means to experience salvation and uh, eternal life. You've recorded this for us and uh, given this instruction so that we can uh, become your disciples, so we can live the life that you've called us to live, and so I pray that you would just illuminate our minds and our hearts, and you would do what we cannot do. God, we are your servants, and we are listening, and so we pray that you would speak to us this morning about what it means to, look like, to become a community of generosity, and the, and the great power and the credibility that brings to the life and teachings of Jesus when we surrender to what your Spirit's doing. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, there's probably nothing that makes people uh, more uncomfortable in church and probably nothing I like talking about less than money. Um, For the first several years of being a church plant, I remember uh, I had a neighbor um, who didn't go to church and uh, started attending a church. And uh, I remember we would hang out. Our families lived in the same kind of town home complex. And uh, and he started going to church and he said, man, all this church talks about is money. He's like, I hate going to church. And so that kind of rang in my mind, and uh, it was like six years before I talked about money again in church, um, and I began to realize, like, it's important for us to talk about it, because in the Bible, and we have to deal with it, um, I think how we talk about it is more is as important as what we say. And uh, there's probably nothing that has a bigger taboo in our culture. We will talk about anything, 
Maybe, maybe politics is the only other thing that's as taboo as money, right? Like we all love this vision and acts of like this generous community and they're selling homes. We love to talk about that generally, but like I dare you to show up in community this week and talk about it particularly. Like, you, like it sounds really great idealistically, but like I just, this week, just do an experiment. Um, walk into your office, walk into your missional community, walk into uh, your family and say, hey, let's all get out our 1040s. Wouldn't it be cool if we got out our 1040s? And we got our bank statements, and we just kind of reviewed all of our purchases, like, like how much we spent on coffee last year, right? How much we spent on food, like this is broader, but how much did you spend on coffee and food? Like that'll tell you something about, you know, uh, what you believe about human flourishing, right? Like get that specific, and things get silent, things get weird, things get awkward in a hurry, right? And I can't think of anything, though, as taboo as it is, and we'll come back to that in a little bit more relevant to this moment in which we're living than what's happening in this passage, right? Like to talk with our neighbors and friends and our church community about housing, about real estate development, about wealth building, right? And which is ultimately about power. Like all of those things are happening in this passage. And you know, every community has, um, has like, you know, idols or has these sacred, the sacred core, what some people have called like a sacred core. And I just wonder if in a place like Broderpool, one of our idols, one of those sacred core things isn't money and housing and real estate. It's the one thing we, we rarely get specific and particular about when we think about discipleship. And we love to talk about being authentic and being vulnerable and being a community of confession. When was the last time that you or I confessed greed or envy to somebody else? When was the last time we confessed like, yeah, I purchased too much last year, like I overdid it? When was the last time we, we even examined and looked at that or even talked about that in our discipleship, right? Like, I'm, and I'm not saying, like you even say me, like that's, it's not easy to do. It, especially right now in COVID, I think it's so important because we live in a moment that one cultural commentator, uh, Andy Crouch, he says, like, as we come through COVID, a lot of people thought we were going to experience a V-shaped recovery, and what it's actually starting to look like is more of a K-shaped recovery, like some people are doing better than they ever have, like the government's giving away money, we've got cat, there's a glut of cash uh, out there, people have more savings than they've had in decades, and yet for some people, some of our neighbors, it's never been worse than it is right now, and there's this growing disparity between, like, how you've experienced COVID financially. And that's going to be something we're going to have to deal with. At the end of this article, Andy Crouch says, beware of, jubilee without, or beware of jubilation without jubilee. Right? We'll talk more about jubilee in just a second. But I just want us to, I think this is such an important conversation. And uh, here's kind of the big idea today that I want us to, to see from Acts 4. How we handle real estate. How we handle possessions. How we handle money and power reveals the presence or the absence of the Holy Spirit in our lives and our communities. How we handle real estate, how we handle possessions, how we handle money reveals the presence or the absence of the Holy Spirit in our lives, in our community. So I, I just want to say just quickly, I kind of got out a little, little off track in the first service uh, as I'm prone to do, so I'm going to keep it simple for y'all. Um, but like, I, I want us just to look at what's going on here just quickly. Because I think um, it's important to understand what's happening and what's not happening. So <clears throat> what we see here um, is something radically different. Like, it's hard for us to imagine. Like, I want to really deal with our imagination today. It's hard for us to really imagine what's happening in the book of Acts because our imagination when it comes to economics has been so shaped by the two dominant 
uh, economic systems of the last several centuries, right? Capitalism on the one hand and communism on the other hand. Now, interestingly, as a side note, uh, and again, I'm not commending this, but just as a side note, Karl Marx's Communist Manifesto starts with these words from Acts, to anyone as they have need. Just interesting. And, and again, I'm not here to talk about economic systems because this is not presenting, with, presenting us with an economic system. But I think it's, it's, it's going to be hard for us to break out because either we live in America in a, in a capitalist society that has formed and shaped us in certain kind of ways, both for the good and for the bad, right? Um, and then for some of us, we spent so much time reacting to what we see as communism that we close ourselves off to some of the realities that contradict and uh, possibly... Um, invite us to see a different way of thinking about economics because what we see here is kingdom economics at work. It's not an economic system, but it's kingdom economics. Acts doesn't give us an economic system. It gives us a rich vision for the kind of community that forms the basis for the things that are very close to the heart of God in Scripture. God cares about solidarity, particularly economic solidarity, generosity, justice, compassion, That's what Acts is after, is what kind of community is possible that would create that kind of deep solidarity and generosity and justice. Now, this is really a two-part message. So we have the end of Acts 4 here. We have a positive example of what this looks like. And then at the beginning of chapter 5, next week, Steve's going to come back. And Steve's going to give you all the negative. He's going to talk about the greed and the withholding and the deceit. I get to talk about the positive, right? Like, there's nothing, this is all good right here. So what I want to do today is just, I want to hit on your imagination, and I want to poke and provoke on your imagination. I want, to, I want to just deal with, like, and speak to our imagination, what is possible for the church? Like, your broader vision for what do you want with your life? Like, the level of desire. Do we even want something like this to be possible? Like, the first question that Jesus asks his disciples in John chapter 1, when they start to follow him, he says, what do you want? Money speaks to our desires. What do we want? And that's what I want to just talk to us about today. Like, what does it look like to interrogate our desires, to interrogate our vision for flourishing, and to ask, how have we been formed towards this kind of vision, and how have we been formed away from this kind of vision, and what needs to change in order for us to even want this to be true? Some of us, we don't care. We're apathetic towards it. And so what I want to do is just give us an imagination for that, because what's here in this passage is more of a heart posture and, 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 and really a desire. It's something that I hope all of us want to be true, and we can aspire towards as a community. Like, just do we want it to be true? Like, I know some of you are like accountants, and you're, you know, you're, you're like a finance person. You're like, oh, it's not sustainable. That's utopia. Can't, okay, let's just let's set that aside for a second. This isn't about is this sustainable. It's do we even want this to be true? Do we even have a vision for the possibilities in this passage to align ourselves with that in a way that God wants for us to? That's what this passage is about. Willie Jennings, it's time for a Willie Jennings quote. He's a commentator, one of my favorites on this passage. He says this, the real questions are not whether this holy communalism, this sacred sociality could or would be operative, be practical in this ancient world or any world. But what must it have been like to feel the powerful pull of the life of our Savior? And what energy did it take to resist the Holy Spirit, to slow down this pull enough to withhold themselves and their possessions from divine desire? 
I love this language of holy communalism. That's what's happening in this passage. So this is not communism. This is not socialism here in this passage. Let me just walk you through what it is. What is communalism? What is this idea that's being laid out here? Um, The first thing we see, it's Holy Spirit empowered. This is what the Spirit of God does. For the second time in the book of Acts, we see when the Spirit of God falls on a community, it changes their approach to economics. It changes their approach to wealth building and thinking about their money. It's, It's empowered by the Spirit. It's not something that is humanly organized or is the predictable result of sociology or economic theory. It's voluntary, not compulsory. Notice people are selling things that belong to them. It's voluntary. It's not forced by fiat or by legislation. It's periodic, right? All the verbs in here are imperfect verbs. That means they're happening from time to time, episodically, but not all the time or permanently, right? You see still people are owning things throughout the book of Acts after Acts chapter 4. Uh, It's need-based, right? As people had need, it's not trying to necessarily say everybody's going to have the same end result. It's just saying as people have needs, those needs are being met. And then again, the last thing we see is that um, there's private ownership that continues on, right? Like what's happening here is the control of the funds are being given to the church. This is not deeding everything over to the church in a common purse, right? What's fascinating here uh, about the early church, oftentimes we forget that there actually were quite a few wealthy people in the church. So we have like two extremes in the church community. Paul says, not many of you were wealthy, but he didn't say none of you, right? And actually a disproportionate amount of the upper classes were coming into the Christian movement, including Paul himself. And if you notice, like we, we get all like, oh, I want to go back to the early church where it was just house church. Okay, like, you know, people have to own houses for, in order to open them up. Like, These houses housed anywhere from 50 to 120 people. So there were wealthy Christians who were funding the church ministry, opening up their homes, selling their lands. Um, And and that was one of the fascinating things about the church is it brought together the very wealthy and the very poor in a way that was just shocking to Greco-Roman thinking. So how does the Spirit create this kind of generosity in a community of faith? I just want to point out uh, three things that I think are really important to this passage, and then we'll get to some application. The first thing I want you to notice is um, the solidarity that the Holy Spirit creates, the, the joining that the Holy Spirit creates. Notice the entire group of those who believed were of one heart and mind. They held everything together in common. The first thing that the Holy Spirit does is to join them together in a common experience of God and community to create these deep bonds of unity and intimacy that then lead to solidarity, right? If you go back a couple of chapters, you see just these shared experiences that are bonding them together, right? Taking people who are from different cultural backgrounds, at this point, mostly uh, Greek Jews, Hellenized Jews from around uh, the, the Mediterranean. He's bringing them together into a diverse community, and they're experiencing crazy, miraculous signs and wonders, right? The power of Pentecost falls in chapter 2, Everybody's speaking in tongues. They see that thousands of their neighbors and fellow countrymen and women come to know Jesus, right, in faith. There's a revival that breaks out. Uh, Then there's the participation in a common life together. They're eating together. They're drinking together. If you weren't here a couple weeks ago, I said, man, if you you know there's a revival with Christians from different cultures when they can agree on the menu, right? Like that's a very difficult thing to get people to agree on a menu, right? Even Thanksgiving and Christmas, that's not easy to do. So they're sharing in these 
habits together. They're in each other's homes. They're, they're sharing the gospel with their friends. They're experiencing threats and hostility together. They're, they're being bound together as they pray. The, the, the place, we ended last week in chapter uh, four with the place where they were at being shaken by the Holy Spirit. They had this intensified experience of the Spirit of God together. And what all that is doing is just weaving together a fabric of intimacy, right? Intimacy. Intimacy is the foundation for solidarity. They had shared affections. They felt certain kinds of feelings toward each other, right? They were reinterpreting what it meant to be family to one another. They, were, they had these shared experiences together that then created a common bond. I don't know if you've ever had this experience before where you're brought together with a bunch of random people that you didn't know. And like in a really, it's amazing how in a really short amount of time when you're facing adversity or you're experiencing some sort of challenge or hostility, how quickly you can become close and almost like family with total strangers. Like uh, there's an accelerated intimacy that happens. Um, I experienced this as a new Christian on the campus of the University of Kentucky. I showed up, uh, was a new follower of Jesus, and I met a group of uh, fellow Christians and uh, we all came from totally different backgrounds, like some from rural Kentucky, some from the city, uh, all kinds of different cultural, racial backgrounds. And we begin to come together in this community called Fellowship of Christian Athletes. And we begin to do life together and worship together and start Bible studies together and go out and share our faith together. And we experience hostility together. And there was, there was just a bond that was forged in the fire of that adversity that, that, that created a bond. Like I would do anything for them. I would give it. Now I was only making $12,000 a year as a waiter at Bella Note uh, Italian restaurant in Lexington. But like, I would have given anything for these people. They were like brothers and sisters. And some of you have experienced that maybe on a sports team, um, or maybe you've experienced that in a military unit. Um, or I know my friends uh, who immigrate from other places, like that often happens as immigrants come to America, they form bonds. Even if they attend church, maybe in a majority culture church, they form bonds of intimacy and they share dinners and meals together uh, with people from a similar cultural background. And it, and it really brings you together um, when you're a minority in a majority context, right? And that's what they were. They were a minority in a minority within the majority context of the Roman Empire. And this intimacy creates bonds of solidarity that made them capable of sacrifice and love and service and generosity. Jennings, again, goes on to say, these followers of Jesus released themselves to one another, making themselves responsible for and accountable to one another. Money here will be used to destroy what money is usually is used to create, distance and boundaries between people. Too often in our reading of this story, our view is clouded by the spectacular giving, and we miss the spectacular joining. Solidarity has that power. It has the power to break the power of money. Money, again, money's not bad, right? Like money's neutral. God gives it actually as a gift. Money and wealth are not bad, and we're going to talk more about that. Uh, actually, we're going to do a series on simplicity and generosity as we lead up into Lent in February. So I'm not going to go too deep into this. But money's not bad, but what money can do if left unchecked and apart from the power of God is that it can create divisions between people. It creates geographic divisions where we literally don't live near people from a different class. It creates relational divisions. It creates psychological distance and division between individuals and groups of people. This is what made this so, so, so different, so radically different um, as they came together. In the Greco-Roman world, they had communalism. Like, that existed in the Greco-Roman context. Aristotle talked about spiritual friendship as being of one mind with other people. 
Plato incorporated that into his political vision of the utopian community. Pythagoras, who was a mathematician and philosopher, said, among friends, everything is common. So there's overlap and similarity, but in the Greco-Roman context, generosity um, only happened within the social structures of class and status, right? So you would give, but you would give to people who were of equal social status or up. You never gave down the ladder, so to speak. When it came to the poor, when it came to those down the social ladder, there was a kind of built-in or baked-in sense of superiority and isolation and suspicion and mistrust. And ultimately, kind of the, the way they thought about the poor was, they're not my people, so they're not my problem. That's, that's distance. That's what money does. It says, not my people, not my problem. Now, the backdrop for this phrase here in verse 34 is not just something that the, the disciples made up for there was not a needy person among them. This is something that came out of the law, came out of Deuteronomy, right? So God delivers his people from slavery and exodus, and then he sets them together to form a new society of justice. That's what Deuteronomy and all the laws are about. It's saying this is what a just society would look like, right? And, and God invites them into this. And the backdrop of this specifically is Deuteronomy chapter 15. If you want to read this later, I strongly encourage you to take a few minutes this week, read Deuteronomy 15, because it's all about the fact that God says there's not going to be any needy, any poor, is the word in uh, Deuteronomy, among you. And then it closes in, in verse 11 of that passage by saying, there will always be poor in the land. And so he goes on to talk about how do we interact with the poor? How do we interact with needs in the community? And God says this paradox, this tension of like, there shouldn't be any poor among us, and yet there's always going to be poor in the land. In the land. And what God's saying there is that uh, basically it shouldn't be the same poor over multiple generations. There's always going to be poor, but it shouldn't be the same people, right? Like, and, and so what God is after in this Deuteronomy passage uh, and creating this kind of society is trying to correct this tendency when we experience success, right? Successful people who follow kind of, you know, you know the kind of meritocracy works, right? Like go to high school, get a degree, go to college, get a degree, get your MBA, get a job, get married, have kids, buy a house, right? Like that's, that's kind of the American dream. That's the path of meritocracy. And, and again, um, there's nothing wrong with that. But what happens when we experience that success and we arrive at the top of the ladder, so to speak, is we begin to evaluate others. We begin to dehumanize those who maybe are down the ladder from us. We begin to evaluate them on the basis of marketplace thinking, right? Like value added. Do they add value? Or, or do they work as hard as, as me? And, and we can kind of dehumanize those who fall into poverty by distancing ourselves from them. Well, I've done this and I've worked hard and they haven't, so that's why I'm here and they're there. And what's interesting in Deuteronomy is God speaks to that and he says, don't be hard-hearted towards your brothers who fall into poverty. And he uses the language of family. He uses the language of family to reframe this. They're not some random poor person out there. This is your family. This is your own flesh. They are your brothers. You are them and they are you. When you look in the eyes of the poor, when you look in the eyes of the needy, you are looking into the eyes of God and you are looking into the mirror to see yourself. That's a radically different way to think about poverty. And there's all kinds of warnings in the book of Deuteronomy as they come into the promised land like, don't forget God. 
Deuteronomy, read Deuteronomy 8 this week. Don't forget when you come into the land and you get prosperous, your temptation, God says, is going to be to think that you were the source of your wealth, you were the source of your power, you were the source of this inheritance, and don't forget, I'm the one who blessed you and brought you into this land. And so we have to allow God to reframe our perspective and be reminded that everything we have belongs to God and that we are in solidarity. Calvin, John Calvin, one of the uh, Protestant reformers, was seeking to create this kind of just community in Geneva back in the 16th century. And he said, when you wound the poor, you wound God himself. There's that deep identification in solidarity that then leads to the kind of intimacy and the kind of generosity that we see in this passage. That's important, right? That's, that's the basis for sharing. When I'm in relationship with you and I see you not as a you or an other, but as part of me, as part of my family, as part of common humanity, now sharing becomes easier because it's not a, it's not a competitive game. It's, it's a collaborative game. Uh, the second thing we see quickly is, is renunciation. And I'll just hit this quickly. Notice in verse uh, 33, Uh, excuse me, verse 32, no one claimed. So they're one heart and mind, solidarity. Secondly, no one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but instead they held everything in common. Second thing that we see the Holy Spirit doing is giving the disciples this breathtaking freedom to renounce ultimate ownership of their possessions. Again, it's not that they signed over their homes and their land to a common purse, but they did the more difficult work. It'd be easy to sign over your land and not sign over the deed of your heart. The harder work actually here is the inner work of surrendering control of your possessions. It's like, how do you narrate the story of your stuff? How do you narrate the story of your home, right? Like from the time that my kid, I have four kids, from the time, the very first word, I don't know where they learned this. I, maybe uh, Emily taught them this, but from the time they were little, their favorite word at two years old was to say, mine, right? Like we learned very early, it's mine. This is my toy. This is my stuff. Don't get on my stuff. And it's amazing how as adults, we don't lose that tendency. It just intensifies. We learn like more socially acceptable ways of saying mine, right? But we still believe that. It's my house. This is my land. This is my stuff. This is my car. These are my possessions, my clothes, my shoes. That kind of ownership thinking, it gives us the illusion of control, but it's a sense of false power, right? That's at odds with the biblical narrative. What is the biblical narrative? We are not owners We are stewards, right? We're managers. We're God's managers. Let's just say that together. We are not owners. We are stewards. Let's say it. We are not owners. We are stewards. We have to drill that into us because we live in a world that is constantly trying to tell us that we own stuff that we don't own in the ultimate sense, right? Like there's private ownership, but I'm a steward. I'm a manager. And that's dangerous when we begin to approach our, our real estate that way, we begin to approach our housing that way, we commodify something that's not ours to have possession of. Richard Foster, in his book, The Freedom of Simplicity, says this, one of the most destructive systems in our day is that of establishing value for land and for the buildings that sit upon it. This system socioeconomically alienates vast people groups. We make maps, we mark them up, we divvy out the land to the highest bidder as if it were no more than piece of artwork at an auction. Land in more ways than one belongs to God alone, yet we treat the land as if we made it. We buy it, we sell it, and as a result, the value of land and that of the structures that we build upon it 
is determined by the market. Now, again, I'm not against home ownership. I own a home. But the question is, is it mine or not? Who owns my house? Who owns my stuff? The, the early Christian community had two convictions that drove everything about their community life, right? We see this time and time again, Acts 2, Acts 4, Acts 6. You see this, see this like a thread that runs through the book of Acts. Two things. One, everything we have belongs to God. They, they had internalized Psalm 24, which says, the earth belongs to the Lord and the fullness thereof. They, they understood that everything they had belonged to God. It's not mine. As a matter of fact, the more that they got possessive with their land, the more God started to dispossess them of their land and push them out of their land and remind them, hey, hey guys, when he sent them to exile, this land belongs to me, not to you, and I can do with it as I will, and if you want to be selfish and greedy with your land, you can get off my land, God basically says. They knew everything they had belonged to the Lord. That's why they had practices like sabbatical. Every seven years, they had to rest the land as a reminder that it belonged to God. Jubilee, every 50 years, imagine this, every 50 years, the land was redistributed. It was like a game of Monopoly. It all went back in the box, and it all got distributed back out. All the land returned to families and clans. There was no multi-generational poverty in the initial law of God because of Jubilee, the year of release, the year where all debts are forgiven. That's not Karl Marx. That's Deuteronomy and Leviticus. That's crazy. And you know what? There's no evidence they ever abided by it, and a lot of people think that's why they actually went into exile. Now, they believed that about their stuff, and then they also had this conviction that everything that they had belonged to one another. And again, this, this is so crazy, but like, listen to the way that the early church talks. It's so different than how we're trained to think, but this is the consistent testimony of the earliest Christian communities. My favorite quote is from Basil of Caesarea. He was a bishop. If you're in healthcare, he actually built the first public hospital offering free medical care for the poor and the sick. That was what the Christian church was about uh, uh, before the Romans kind of got into the mix. And here's what he says about stuff belonging to other people. The bread that you hold back belongs to the hungry. The coat that you guard in a chest belongs to the naked. The shoes that you have left wasting away belong to the shoeless. The silver that you have buried in the ground belongs to the needy. And these and other ways you have wronged, you've wronged all of those you were able to provide for. I mean, that's radical. Like, this stuff belongs to the poor. They have claims on it because we are in solidarity with one another. And then generation after generation of wealthy and privileged Christians have had to learn these lessons over and over and over again. You see it in the desert fathers and mothers who lived in the twilight years of the Roman Empire when greed and corruption and abuse was running rampant through the church and through society. They literally had to withdraw out into the desert. They renounced, and most of these people came from upper middle class upper-class backgrounds, very educated, very wealthy, the very first thing that they saw was the danger of their wealth to ensnare them, to enslave them, to perpetuate patterns of injustice. And they said, I don't want to have it. It's like dynamite. I don't want to have anything to do with this. So they renounce their possessions. They sell it all. They give to the poor. They take vows of poverty to unlearn their patterns of greed and relearn patterns of solidarity with the poor and simplicity of heart and life and generosity. And many of them just did it for a season. It wasn't permanent, but just for a season. And as they re-entered the society, they re-entered with a new power of humility and service in the way that they saw their wealth. Now, I'm not saying that all of us need to do that. Some of us probably should consider that, right? We always assume that God's blessing means more and more and bigger and better and not less, downward mobility instead of upward mobility. 
But I think it would be a helpful exercise maybe this week for us just to walk through our possessions. If you own a home, even if you rent a home, whatever, if you, you know, own uh, clothing and which all of us, you know, do food, just to walk through your house, to look at your stuff and just like open up your hands, right? Like this tight-fistedness is how we kind of approach our possessions, but open up your hands and just renounce your things. I don't own these. They belong to God. Break the ties of possessiveness and attachment that lead you to be compulsive towards your stuff and just recognize none of this is a result of my effort. All of this is a gift. Even if I do own it, who gave me the mind? Who gave me the ability? Who gave me the opportunities? God did. And so just practicing a rhythm of renunciation and saying, I don't own this. I'm a steward. I'm a manager. So God, what would you have me do with my house this week? God, what would you have me do with my stuff this week? What would you have me do with my clothes this week? Like, how would that change? I mean, I'm all about, like, Marie Kondo, sparking joy. You know, like, let's, that's great. But, like, what if you threw your clothes on the bed instead of saying, what sparks joy? Just, like, what sparks the heart of God? God, what do you, what do you want for this stuff? Because it doesn't belong to me. It belongs to you, and it belongs to my neighbors. And, and that's, then you can see, like, the logic of how that led very naturally then to generosity to people showing up to their missional communities, to, to Joseph, who became known as Barnabas, offering up a field, just saying, hey, man, I got this. I see this need in missional community. Somebody's got a bunch of school debt. I, I show up to missional community. Hey, can I pay off your school debt? I'd love to sell that second piece of property that I have just to be able to fund your, your college debt. I'd love to be able to send your kids to college. I mean, can you imagine that staggering kind of general? That's the stuff that makes headlines, I'd love to pay off your medical bills. I know that life went sideways for you, and I would love to be able to take care of that for you. How about I just step in and sell something and pay your medical bills? I mean, that's the kind of richness of community that we see in the early church. And it gave great credibility to the gospel message, right? Like, they didn't have to, like, do any gimmicks to get people to come to church with great power. I mean, that kind of community has a certain kind of power to it, right? It's so countercultural. With great power, now they're giving testimony to the resurrection of Jesus, and great grace was on them all. Yeah, no wonder, because this is crazy. Who lives like this? And so people were drawn through their economic practices to the power of the message because they saw it embodied in the community. Tertullian, one of the early church fathers, wrote that it was the Christian generosity that led their pagan neighbors to exclaim, see how they love one another. I mean, do we, do we have that kind of imagination? They were feeding 3,000 in Rome, 3,000 people each day, clothing prisoners, pay, uh, you know, paying hospital bills, caring for the homeless, the disabled, orphans, widows, refugees, taking on plagues with generosity to the point where the emperor Julian is so frustrated with the Christian generosity because it's converting massive numbers of people away from the pagan temples and the, the coffers are getting empty that he writes to one of his priests and he says, these impious Christians, these Galileans, which was a derogatory term for uneducated backwoods people, in addition to their own, support ours. And it's shameful that our poor should be wanting our aid. Man, it's radical. One of my favorite quotes comes from Aristides, who was a Christian apologist. And he, and he gives us just a glimpse into what this looked like in everyday life. He says, they, the Christians, walk in all humility and kindness. Falsehood is not found among them, and they love one another. They despise not the widow. They grieve not the orphan. He that hath distributeth liberally to him that hath not. If they see a stranger, they bring him 
under their roof and rejoice over him as if it were their own brother. For they call themselves brethren, right? That's that idea of family, not after the flesh, but after the spirit and in God. When one of their poor passes away from the world and any of them see him, then he provides for his burial according to his ability. And if they hear that any of their number is imprisoned or oppressed for the name of their Messiah, all of them provide for his needs. And if it's possible, he may be delivered, they deliver him. And if there is a man among them that is poor and needy and they have not among them an abundance of necessities, they fast two or three days that they may supply the needy with their necessary food. Leslie Newbegin, British missionary, says this, we must live in the kingdom of God in such a way that it provokes questions for which the gospel is the only answer. Is the way that I'm handling my money, that you're handling your real estate, your home, your land, your possessions, is it provoking questions for which only the gospel has the answer? Or are we just going along with and swimming with the tide of the circles of people in which we run, playing status games, signaling with our wealth that we're in, but not challenging those narratives, those stories? This is the imagination that I want us to have as a community. This is what I long for, for us to be a community where we see increasingly more and more We are coming under the power of the good news of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit in such a way that it leads us to become this kind of community. I just want to close here, and and I'm going to invite Robin to come and share a little bit about how this has happened in our community. I just want to close with some some things for us to think about, Some, some ideas that might guide our imagination as we think about just applying this personally. One is the idea of radical class distinction. Um... Most of you, if you live in Broderpool, right, like if you, especially if you own a home in Broderpool, you are probably, on a global scale, pretty financially successful. I mean, it's becoming difficult to buy a home in Broderpool and not be pretty financially well off, to be honest. Many of us in this room, even if you're young, you're on a track to become, again, against global standards, pretty financially successful. And I want to caution you that there's going to be a temptation as you climb that ladder and as you make more money to get caught up in the status game, right? To get caught up in, you know, where's your second home and how many of these do you own and what are, where are your toys, right? To continue to climb that ladder because we're comparing up. We're looking at those who have a little bit more than us and we're saying, how do I get into that? How do I have the life that they have? And so that leads us then to not distinguishing ourselves, but rather just kind of assimilating ourselves, and, and so the question becomes, in, in every research we see, that the more money we make, the less generous we are. That is, that is a fact of data. You can look at that. The higher your income, the lower your percentage of giving is across the board, right? So we're going to be tempted to prove our metal, to prove that we belong, to do wealth signaling in our, in our, in our pursuit of that. And, we're, and our imagination is going to be recruited all the time. Your imagination is being recruited. And what fills your imagination is what's going to fill your conversation, what's going to fill your life. I long for us to be a community that resists that pull, that seeks to say, how can I live in such a way in my class, wherever you find yourself, that I'm provoking those questions among my peers, like, why do you do that? Why do you live this way? This week, the DCS was in one of our homes of uh, a family in our church um, who is hosting refugee children, and they were like, 
what are you doing? This doesn't make any sense to us. Why, why are you doing this? Like living with such generosity of their home and their life, DCS is like, this doesn't make sense to us. Like that's, those are the kinds of questions we should be provoking in our community with our generosity. Not to draw attention to ourselves, but to say, look what God's done for us. So I long to be a kind of community where we show up out in the gallery and we're not just talking about, and again, I'm not against home remodeling, I'm not against it, but just like, is that all that we're going to talk about as a church? Our second house, our lake thing, this, that, and again, I don't mean to disparage anybody that's doing that, I'm just saying, like, what's filling our conversations? What's filling our imagination? I long to show up and we're talking about what we sold this week to provide for the needs of our brothers and sisters. What real estate did I sell? What did I divest myself of? What opportunity did I forfeit that I could have done because I saw this need and I just wanted to meet it? I mean, that's, that's the work that God wants to do in us, and that's going to require us to do some reflecting on our stories, right? Because money is very emotional. It's a very hard topic to talk about, and we all have a story of why we're pursuing what we're pursuing, right? Real estate and money and power, Jesus would say, where your heart is, there your treasure is. Money excavates our hearts. It tells a story about what we believe about the good life, right? And, and, and we are living in the story of the kingdom as Christians, but it's easy to live in the story of the world, which is all about more and the pursuit of abundance apart from God. And so we have to do that work to reflect on, like, why do I want what I want? Why do I pursue the things that I pursue? It's why we say the generosity liturgy every week, because we want to say, not us, not us. We are committed to, again, we are committing ourselves week in and week out to being a community where there is no needy among us, which will be impossible if we are not sacrificing for one another. It's just not possible. So we have to do that hard work of excavating our hearts and asking those questions. Am I being formed? And that's why we need community, right? The third thing, we need to normalize transparency and community about finances, right? Notice there's regular, transparent conversations happening among the community about money. They're not afraid to talk about money. They're not afraid to talk about what they own, about their possessions, right? And again, in the right way, in safe environments, I'm not saying you go around with a sign on your head like I make X amount of dollars, my properties, but like we should be talking about equity and wealth and property with somebody. There ought to be somebody who knows everything about us financially. We talk about that with sexuality. We talk about that with, you know, scripture reading and prayer and other spiritual disciplines. Why don't we talk about money with that kind of transparency? Because there's so much shame. There's so much fear. What if people found out what I really make? What's that going to say about me? What are they going to think of me? And I just want to encourage you, like, greed and isolation grow in the dark. We got to bring those things into the light like everything else. Also, when we think about community, we need to be asking the question, who's in our circle of community? The city is pushing us apart from a class perspective. Historical patterns of real estate mean that we don't spend a lot of time crossing over class barriers. And so we got to be careful that we don't get detached from real need with each other in this church, but also in the larger community. That's why education is a beautiful opportunity to do that. I think you should be intentional, especially if you have kids. I know some of you are teachers and you get to do this. We have benefited from being a part of a community that 50% of our community is not uh, Caucasian white and 50% of our community is not uh, is not middle class or upper middle class. And so we live together in community, specifically and intentionally with other folks, and we get to know them, and we get to hear their stories, and we get to learn what it looks like to be family together. And that's changed, changed my life. I know some of you guys do that. Some of you are coaches at Purdue Polytech. Some of you are teachers. 
some of your volunteers over there and our partnership with them. And you've been able to be a part of experiencing, getting to know kids, teenagers, families from different parts of the city. You would have never come into contact any other way. It's beautiful. I want to encourage you, uh, we have an opportunity at the table out when you're done. And we have this partnership where we're providing uh, and, and just meeting needs at that school. And we'll have a table out there if you want to learn more about how you can do that. Gift cards and just ways to bless and ways to get involved with tutoring, coaching, all kinds of stuff. It's a great, easy opportunity to begin to live into that. But we, we need community. And then the last just practical thing I want to say before Robin comes is um, I think it's helpful for us to think about giving to the church for this reason. Notice they lay it all at the apostles' feet. One of the things that was super countercultural about this generosity and bringing it to the church is that there was this cycle of reciprocity that kind of built in shame between the giver and the person that you give. You ever had somebody invite you out to dinner and take you to like a really nice restaurant? What's your immediate impulse after they do that? Oh, thanks, that's great. And you just walk away. No, you're like, hey, I got you next time. It creates this, this cycle, right? Where like, I do for you, you do for me. That works well when you're working with the same class. It does not work well when you're crossing over classes. So one of the reasons why they laid it at the apostles' feet, and this is a pattern for centuries after this, they, would, they had a deacon's fund, they would bring their funds to the, to the church, one of the reasons why is because secret giving is important. Jesus says, don't give in a way in which others can see. Give your giving in secret. It breaks that cycle. And so just as we think about why we give to the church, we think about this season. We have some of you that are new to the church, and maybe you're not giving to the church, and that's fine. We're glad that you're here. Um, we have an opportunity to begin giving maybe for the first time. We have an Advent offering that we uh, do every December. Um, which is an opportunity for us just to strengthen our financial position as a church, for us to continue to expand uh, the ministry that we're doing in the city, to see the gospel go out in word and deed across our city. We have that opportunity now as we think about kind of rounding the corner on 10 years of being a church and moving into the future. God is going to birth something new in us and do some things in us in this next season, and he's going to do it through our generosity. And so we have that opportunity. I don't say that to like use this and then start some big you know, marketing campaign. I'm just saying like that's one of the blessings of being able to contribute is you're releasing control, surrendering control, and learning to surrender that to a community of people so that needs can be met. We have a benevolence fund that provides counseling and mental health services. We're out in the community serving the poor. These are things that you cannot do on your own, and we need to pull our resources together to do that, and we have a beautiful opportunity through generosity. I'm going to stop now and invite Robin uh, McKinnon, who is uh, our ministry catalyst. She's on staff with us. She does a lot of this work. And one of, the, one of the best ways that I've found in our church for people to learn these rhythms, particularly for those of us who maybe didn't grow up in contexts where we uh, maybe feel comfortable engaging in this way or we uh, are uh, seeing these rhythms uh, at work in our own lives, is through Poorhouse. It's a great ministry. Um, we are part of that. Robin's going to explain a little bit about how that works and then invite you maybe into some... Uh, yeah, some initial uh, experiments in generosity. Thanks, Brandon. Good morning. It's beautiful um, for me to hear this sermon and to get to stand in the back and kind of look at some of the backs of your heads um, and think about the stories that I know of, of how you're individually living with really radical generosity. It's a privilege to be part of this family with you all. And I'm also really thankful that as a church, we have a few collective ways that we're seeking to address the needs of those that are around us in our community. Brandon mentioned that there's a high school just a block from here called Purdue Polytechnic High School. 
And um, we have people within this congregation, Billy Plant is in this one, um, who volunteer time to coach, who um, have tutored, and who have become involved in the lives of the students that are there. Um, there are, as you leave, there are some little um, opportunities to sponsor some students for Christmas. Casey Duffy is the nurse at that school, so if you're interested as you leave, you can grab one of those tags. They have desperate need for math tutors that can show up. If math's your thing, um, talk to Casey and she'll get you connected. The other thing that the Holy Spirit has done really powerfully within our church over the past few years is connect us to something, to a ministry called Poor House. And as a church, we have um, taken upon us to own a piece of the poorhouse ministry called the Welcome Home Team. I'm gonna show you a quick video about this and I'm gonna talk about how you can engage if you're interested. So every single Saturday, um, year round, people gather from this church and participate in moving in people who have been experiencing homelessness. And every single thing that we do is volunteer run and all donated. So I just want to invite, if you have participated in poorhouse movements, will you stand up so that people around you can talk to you if they want to get involved? Tons of you have. Will you just stand so people can see? Yes, awesome. So if you're interested, look around. These people can get you connected. Thank you so much, and thank you for serving. Um, it is a beautiful way for us to support over 15 different ministries and agencies that are, that are working to um, address the issue of homelessness in our city. So we are behind the scenes support getting all of this furniture moved in so that people can be successfully housed long term. And it's a real privilege to be able to do that as a church community to address a really serious need our city has. So if you're interested in volunteering, we would love to have you join us. You can talk to someone that stood up or I'll be in the lobby and you can talk to me every single Saturday. And then every month we change the color of our bags. These are donation bags that are found in our lobby. We would love to invite you to just consider this part of your giving to grab a bag. The list that is on the bag will change every month and you can just drop those here. Every single thing that goes to the clients that we move in is something that someone has donated to us. And so in addition, um, by faith, the Lord uh, raised the money through this church for the box truck and the trailer that sit in our parking lots. You can always drop furniture, anything that the Lord might put on your heart to donate into those anytime during the week. And so it's a, it, it is, um, I, the, the other thing I want to say, I know I'm not preaching, that the, um, the Holy Spirit does miracles when we are there. And I want to tell you, miracles. Like, and they might seem little, but every time I leave, my faith is, it grows. Like, no, we have no coffee pots. And that's important if you're a coffee drinker, right? No coffee pots. And like, we'll pray, someone will pull up in a minivan. Oh, I've got these, you know, 15 new coffee pots to donate and unload them. It is nonstop. Because why? Because we're partnering with the Spirit. Mm -hmm. And he delights. He delights to show his power and to really involve his children in the work that he's doing. So come join us. Um, and as you're leaving, if you're interested in a bag or in sponsoring a student, they'll be out in the lobby. Thanks, Robin. Preach on. <laughs> Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word. I thank you for this vision of being a generous community. God, where your spirits at work so powerfully that we don't claim anything that we possess as our own, that we recognize that everything belongs to you. Everything we have belongs to our brothers and sisters. And God, we joyfully 
sacrificially, regularly are giving and evaluating everything that is in our stewardship that you have given to us as a gift to say, how can I use this to serve the kingdom? And so God, would you by the power of your Holy Spirit just work in convicting and encouraging us in that work this week. Um, We know that this is something that only happens by grace. And so as we come to celebrate communion, we're just reminded that you are with us, in us, and for us in this work of uh, gospel uh, partnership. And so we ask for your help and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.